Welcome to the second episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Madeline Romera, and I'm a student here at Notre Dame and a member of the Undergraduate International Security Studies Certificate Program. Today, I'm fortunate to be speaking with Professor Eugene Goltz, who works primarily at the intersection of national security and economic policy, defense management, and U.S. grand strategy. Last week, Mackenzie and Mr. Jae Woong Lee discussed the North Korean crisis in great detail. I thought today we could discuss some current events that have been overshadowed by the recent events in North Korea. First, I'd like to take a look at some of the recent events in Europe. On Sunday, Angela Merkel was re-elected to a fourth term as Chancellor of Germany, a close ally of the United States, especially militarily through the NATO alliance. Does the United States really need to be allied with NATO? Is Russia really such a great threat that the European countries won't be able to defend themselves without U.S. involvement? Well, yeah, great. Uh, uh, thanks, Maddie. Um, nice to talk to you about these questions. And obviously, um, uh, uh, trying to think about the future of NATO is uh, a topic sort of near and dear to my heart. I've been, been thinking about it for a long time. So, um, I, you know, I, I um, uh, am not sure that uh, the re-election of Angela Merkel um, poses a big pivotal point of changing anything about, about NATO. I mean, among other things, she was reelected. It's not right. like there's a new government. So um, we don't really, don't really know um, maybe, her, maybe her policies or, or U.S. policies will change. But, but, I mean, NATO seems currently like a bedrock commitment on both sides of the Atlantic. Nobody wants to, you know, there was talk during the campaign, President Trump right. called it obsolete, these kinds mm -hmm. of things. And then he's... Um, uh, stepped back from that view. A bunch of people in his administration said, no, just kidding, we really, we really are committed to NATO. And then the president finally kind of came along and joined the chorus. Um, and of course, I you know, um, uh, haven't had any direct contact with President Trump about this or anything, right. but I, you know, I, I kind of think he was right the first time, right before, when he, when he right. said it was, it was obsolete, that, that um, NATO was a very important alliance. Mm -hmm. um, and made a lot of sense uh, that when, at the time it was founded during the Cold War. It was a, an agreement to um, defend against a very uh, significant military and political threat to the West um, when the Soviet Union was strong and Europe was weak. Um, that situation changed dramatically 25 years ago, and we haven't adapted to that situation. So. Um, uh, you know, G Germany in particular, um, uh, you know, there's an, uh, uh, an old line about NATO that it was to um, keep the U.S. in, the Russians out, and the Germans down, uh, and because um, people are worried about too much German power. Mm -hmm. um, but from the outside, Germany seems to have really developed a, a bit of a, an aversion to um, or an allergy to, to taking a strong leadership role. Like they don't want to be out front. They want to be covered up or part. They, they like being down. They're, they, they're not comfortable with the idea that Germany is the focal point. And in some ways, they um, have been forced into that position, like within European politics right. on the Euro crisis and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but they're not comfortable in that role. And, um, you know, one question is, could you do something? Because, because there's plenty of power right. in Germany to defend against 
Russia, given where Germany is today, where Russia is today. Mm -hmm. and, and Germany is not in the game for posing the same kind of imminent threat that people were afraid of coming right out of World War II, right. right? So the need to keep Germany down is very different today, and the need to keep Russia out is very different today. And so the need to keep the U.S. in is also very different. We don't have as much, as much need for that because you know, Germany isn't the threat it used to be, and Germany could lead Europe or basically by itself defend against Russia. So no, NATO is, is there was a time and a place for it. That time and place is over, and the idea that we should have you know, permanent alliances that endure forever, I mean, that's not the original American way. It doesn't, and it doesn't, and it doesn't seem to, you know, it's sort of unfortunate that the alliance was not written with this as much in mind as it might have been. I mean, it, it, there's some real, there's thoughts. I'm, I'm not a, a historian. My, my, you know, I wouldn't claim this as my core expertise, but it, it, it's fairly clear, I think, from some of President Eisenhower's statements that mm -hmm. he didn't anticipate NATO to be a permanent alliance. Right. Um, uh, he thought the Europeans are getting stronger. Over time, they can take care of more of the burden. We don't need the United States as much. Um, that just wasn't written into the alliance. That was just the feeling of certain presidents. And now we have people who've gotten so used to the alliance that, you know, they don't know how to stop. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's very true. That's very true. Um, do you think that's possibly, do you think Germany's um, willingness to really not be at the forefront of Europe has been one of the reasons they haven't developed their own like nuclear weapons? Yeah, I mean that's a big, a big, a big step for for Germany. I'm sure right. it's you know, um, for many people that's among the scariest things Germany could do. So you wouldn't right. think that would be the first step coming out of their shell. Right. Hey, everybody, <laughs> nuclear weapons. <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, uh, and you know, in terms of a nuclear deterrent for okay. Europe. May or you know the Germans, if there is no strong Europe, the Germans may someday decide they want one of their own. If German right. national sovereignty is the key issue, but but Europe as a whole, even without the United States, the British and the French both have nuclear weapons. Right. The Russians, there is a nuclear balance of power in Europe yeah. as well. Right. You know, regardless of what happens with the Germans, um, uh, I think. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of things that happened in the alliance politics um, uh, uh, of the Cold War and since have been um, one of, the, one of the, the important questions has been uh, who in Europe should have nuclear weapons or who should control nuclear weapons or how do you assuage the fears of people in Europe of either nuclear abandonment or of too much nuclear weapons, right? So that is an important part of the of the politics. But again, today, it, it's just hard to imagine in the European context that that's the pivotal question. Like right. there are other parts, you mentioned North Korea at the beginning, mm -hmm. right? That right. in the North-South Korea dynamic, um, nuclear weapons seem much more salient to the conversation than anybody right. thinks that the, the conversation about European security is driven by, you know, gray area operations, right. you know, hybrid warfare, <laughs> like whatever. Can can the Russians peel off little bits of territory? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is not a, a, a giant 
nuclear crisis right. of sudden sweeping or sudden sweeping invasion going headed to the you know the coast of of uh, Brittany. Um, uh, it's it's um, you know it seems like a much more manageable circumstance if right. these really wealthy, powerful, technologically sophisticated, competent governments, you know. It, it should be easy to imagine them handling the kind of issues that are on the agenda, right? Um, uh, they have the power, they have the competence, they have the capability. Why do they need the tutelage or the parentalism or whatever it is that at one time maybe made sense, but now it just seems... Um, costly. Very true. Very true. Okay, switching gears, let's take a look at the Middle East, uh, where a lot has been happening this week. Um, Kurdistan... Like <laughs> exactly. <coughs> Kurdistan voted for independence from Iraq, and now there's a growing fear in both Turkey and Iran that their Kurdish factions could destabilize the re region. Uh, Saudi Arabia recently announced that they would allow women to drive. <laughs> So nice to see they're, they're catching yeah, up with the times. Progress, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and we're allies of both Turkey and Saudi Arabia and are heavily engaged in the region. Do you, how do you think these recent events will affect our relationships in this area? Uh, should, we continue to stay, should we continue to stay engaged and allied with these countries, or is it time to leave? Well, oh, I mean, you sort of know the answer before you ask, right? <laughs> right. So, of course, it's time to leave. But, yes. But... Um, you know, it has to be done sort of in a in a responsible, prudent, graceful way. It's not just, you know, forget all y'all, we're leaving. That's <laughs> not exactly the right diplomatic approach. But, right. but, um, but, but we have real differences of, of interest, like little frictions with these countries that we are, you know, supposedly tied up with. And they have complicated relationships with, with each other that are very difficult for us to to square our relationship with one with our relationship with the other puts us in a very awkward circumstance over and over again. Most of these countries, um, you know, don't share our values or don't have the same aspirations for what the end state, what the goal of the Middle East ought to be compared to what we view as, the, as, as a good goal. Right. And, you know, in, in some circumstances, we're confronted with an international situation where we just have to suck it up, right? You mm -hmm. sometimes have to work with people who you don't like very much, but you have to right. work together f to achieve a particular interest at a particular time. But the world today, again, just doesn't look like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, Saudi Arabia took a small step into the 19th century um, <laughs> this week. And, you know, that's kind of a funny line, and I don't right. have a... A, a well-developed, deep expertise in Saudi society or government, right? right? That's not, but, but from the outside, like this is the last country the United States would want to have, have, as, our, have as our close pal, right? <laughs> right. For, in a bunch of ways. Like, they, okay, they're going to let women drive now, but there are so many other things that they're still not nice to women right. in many other ways, and they don't share our our you know, kind of uh, idealized, um, you know, work ethic and egalitarian attitude right. and, and just the, the, the American style of so many things is so different. And, and um, 
like Turkey, to bring in the other thing too, they, Saudi Arabia really isn't with the U.S. program. In, right. You know, they, 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 you know, as a state policy, it's pretty clear they don't, as a government, go out of their way to give money to terrorists, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's like a canard that people say. It's going too far. But right. are there people in Saudi Arabia who either wittingly or unwittingly support financially or help create the preconditions for more fundamentalist or extremist or, or let's just say old-fashioned, right? Not, mm -hmm. not the kind of social environment that we like in the United States and try to spread that around the world? Are they working against the U.S. interests in making the world a more um, modern, democratic, peaceful place? And the answer is yes. Their interest is different from ours. And, and right. why we should protect, you know, a country that, that the nicest thing you can say is that they spend a lot of money around the world um, trying to spread a particular uh, interpretation or strain of Islam that um, uh, is not inherently violent, is not inherently anti-American, but that creates conditions where many people um, slip into that next step, mm -hmm. right? So they, so they're not the 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 they're moving things in a direction that is adverse to our interests. Or in mm -hmm. the case of Turkey where you know Turkey is highly opposed to anything that sounds like Kurdish independence because mm -hmm. there are Kurds within Turkey right. that might also clamor for independence or even autonomy. Right. And um, uh, the, the, the Turkish government has a longstanding tradition of, of strong, intense centralization right. and in their government, and so they don't want to give <laughs> autonomy or independence. Or, exactly. Anyway. And that's even before they started to have a religiously inflected government and they're moving right. in, an, in another direction that, that is, again, the, the, for years we used to say, we used to think from the United States, well, Turkey as a, a country which has a lot of a Muslim population but wants to be a modern country and right. it sort of fit with some American, it felt like it fit with some American ideals, but now for its own reasons it's kind of moving in a different way but the United States is, you know, trapped. We're, we have a, a, a treaty alliance with Turkey, but Turkey, um, you know, isn't good in its own domestic human rights terms. It, right. it doesn't match some of our ideals. It um, doesn't makes it hard for us to cooperate with Kurds who we want to work with the Kurds to help stabilize part of Iraq or to help chase terrorists, you know, you know stop ISIS. Mm -hmm. But the Kurds want to kill the, the, the Turks want to kill the Kurds. And so we're put in a bind. Like we're in a position where we are making our interests subservient to Turkish interests because of a, a treaty relationship that was established a long time ago that made sense before, but makes less and less sense. And, um, and it just makes it, it makes it hard for us to, um, to handle all the conflicting interests of the Middle East. In general, we, we, we shouldn't have the illusion. I mean, this is another area we could, we could talk about. We shouldn't have the illusion that we can understand all the deep currents of Middle Eastern politics and deftly manage them at all. Whether, you know, even if we didn't have these conflicts of interest with Saudi Arabia or Turkey, 
it's a very difficult place, and the United States makes lots of mistakes when we try to intervene and try to control. Right. How do we shape or control the politics of a place we just don't understand? Right. Um, Democracy building hasn't really worked there. No. Yeah. So that, it's should a, we keep trying? Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, democracy, so, the, I mean, with the Kurdish election, right? right. So the Kurds voted, right? It was a, a, a democratic plebiscite. Not surprisingly, we think many Kurds want mm. more control of their own political future, more independence. Right. But, um, but right now, they're within different political structures, like the political structure in Iraq, where democracy doesn't favor the Kurds, right? They need kind of checks and balances and liberal protections of their own individual rights, but they're a minority, right? And democracy by itself, right? You can have votes in, in Iraq and the votes are going to favor uh, and have in practice favored a fairly strong, hardline Shiite minority that is averse to the interests of the Kurds, right? That's why the Kurds want independence is that, you know, what democracy promotion has led to in Iraq is chaos, retribution, um, non-inclusive government, anti-liberalism, I mean, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the, one of the main things I like about your idea of restraint. You know, we can lead by example, um, with our democracy, you know, you can't impose it upon everyone, mm -hmm. um, because it just doesn't work if you go in and try to force people who are just culturally opposed or have different culture um, that aren't necessarily, you know, aligned with U.S. values. You can't right. just force them to do something they don't want to do. I mean, it could be a lot of things, right? Culture, interests, right. Uh, um, uh, wealth, mm -hmm. education. I mean, there are lots of different components that, you know, theorists of democratic transitions point to right. um, um, that, you know, it's hard to find it's hard to argue that these places are ripe for a modern democracy or for a liberal democracy. Um, I mean, that's another thing. If we lead by example, it's not just our democraticness. It's our checks and balances and our our um, concern for balancing the interests of different groups instead of wiping out groups that are on the other side that help our system work, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we could demonstrate that that works out well, but we're not in a position to create a balance of power or a balance of interests or a system that that uh, incorporate. We certainly haven't perfected it in the United States, but we're right. much better off than many other countries. Where you know, in the United States, if you lose an election, you, you cry about it for a while and hope <laughs> to win the next election. Right. In many other countries, if you lose an election, you go for your gun. Right. Um, <laughs> it's and, true. You know, we, we just have to, you know, show that waiting for the next election can work out better. Right, right, definitely. So I thought maybe we could end our talk by discussing the F-22 and F-35. It's <laughs> um, so area... More I'm, economics and national security right. instead of strategy. Instead of the... Right. Um, so earlier this week, four F-35s conducted training flight over the Korean Peninsula... I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. um, the U.S. military is planning to upgrade both the F-22 and F-35 with even more firepower and combat capability to maintain their competitive edge. Um, F-35 has been a very controversial program. Um, do you think that the F-22 and F-35 face any real competition? I know the Chinese have the J-22 or the J-20 out. 
this year, um, Su-56, like new Russian technology. Do you think we really face any, any competition in the airspace sphere? Well, um, I mean, on a one-off plane-by-plane basis, um, other countries that have a certain level of technological maturity can, and, and a big budget can try to mimic capabilities or develop new planes. I mean, there, 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 right. there are, you know, serious efforts. Now, there are these other countries that are trying to develop specific weapons technologies that could match a specific technology that the United States has have a lot of challenges in doing that. They mm -hmm. don't have the full-on infrastructure, technological infrastructure, or experience with R&D. You know, we've been spending as much on R&D, military R&D in the United States, every year for the last 50 years as these countries spend on their entire defense budget, including, right. you know, the pay that they give soldiers and, mm -hmm. you know, their training, all that. So, I mean, it, it's... Um, we have so much built-up capability that the idea that they could just readily match it is very difficult. But, but you know, they can focus investment on a specific thing. They're competent countries. They can probably make a specific thing when they put their mind to it. Although, you know, the Chinese have struggled to do that with aircraft, right? So, right. you know, particular aspects are very hard for them because it takes a very high level of precision in machining capability mm -hmm. or in... Um, uh, specific materials that have to be, um, you know, refined to a very high level of purity or, right. you know, a whole set of things that are, that are not kind of general purpose, like all throughout the Chinese society, they figure out how to do this. And so it's a challenge when they look for that extra level mm -hmm. of what would make it competitive. But even if they do, it's, you know, it's a one-off. How do they, how do they build the full panoply of capabilities? So we you know right. if the United States uses its air force, it doesn't use just the F-22 or the F-35 alone. It's in right. the context of um, lots of electronic warfare capabilities, mm -hmm. and it's you know mixed with um, uh, uh, first efforts to suppress the enemy, you right. know, radars, missile systems, all mm -hmm. these to make it easier for our planes to fly. There's a huge package, uh, you know, a, a complex ballet of air capability, and. Right. Um, you know, doing kind of one-off investments like, hey, we've built this prototype mock-up whatever that looks pretty cool doesn't get you the complex ballet. It gets you one piece of the puzzle. Right. And so, and then you have to ask the question, well, so what? Like, okay, let's imagine that they, um, that some other country, once again, it's for a long time, no one has had the ability to compete at all in air superiority with the United right. States. Let's say they fill in that one piece of the puzzle. So we're back to a competitive air environment, not a U.S. complete air supremacy. Mm -hmm. What does that buy them politically? How does that change? How does that lead to a threat or a danger to the United States? Right. It complicates some of the things that we might otherwise want to do when we try to push other countries around. Mm -hmm. But it's not a direct competition or danger. To, like We don't necessarily have to react head-to-head to, head to every specific move that every other country makes. Like, right. we can look at the overall balance. Mm -hmm. Can we achieve what we want to achieve in the world? And some other country building a prototype jet probably doesn't change that. 
Right. right. We're not at war with China or Russia. <laughs> right. Well, or even if we were, mm -hmm. one particular military capability is one piece of the puzzle. It doesn't right. change the overall outcome of Big what picture. the war looks like. Right. Definitely. It doesn't change our ability to defend ourselves or to get what we want, mm -hmm. you know, even if we're on the offense, say, over North Korea. Right. Um, so, you know, you have to be very cautious about the kind of emotional reaction to every time it looks like somebody else is making progress, thinking, oh, oh my gosh, somebody else is making progress. Well, you have to think about it in context or think about the huge hurdles to these other people making that little bit of progress pay off in a strategic sense. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm not, uh, um, I don't fear that we're, I mean, I don't frankly fear that there's a head-to-head -head direct competition problem, but in right. the big picture of one side to the other. So, you know, is the F-35 the best plane Ever will for every mission will always dominate the skies. I mean that seems like an exaggeration. The F thirty five does have some challenges and some problems, um, but um, but that's going to be true of you know any plane that anybody else makes too. And you know it's going to perform better in certain missions than others. And there are trade offs. And um, you know. Uh, do I want the United States to stop buying F-35s and start importing fighter planes from the Russians? No. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not that they have better planes than right. We, right. Right. So, um, but you know, I, I mean, it's a it's a it's a good question because you're moving to the kind of underpinnings, the military underpinnings of American power and American diplomacy and the American strategic position which is a pretty important thing to study these days, not just the, you know, last week the Kurds voted for independence, what does right. that mean, but um, how would that fit into the, into the context of American power and what the United States might be able to achieve or what might threaten the United States that would force the United States to react. Right. And, um, so I appreciate your question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this talk, please continue to follow the new undergraduate podcast series, Students Talk Security. Thank you again so much. You're welcome. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap. <laughs>